You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Amen. You may be seated. Kids, you are free to go back there. Chris and Heather, Kids Church, we have an amazing Doxa Kids ministry. My boys love it. I love the teachers back there, out there. They're, they just have a really good thing going on upstairs. And I want to say I missed being with everyone last week. Wow, I missed it. I, I, I left 30 minutes before the worship service started, so I still got to see a lot of you. But I missed so many of you. I missed preaching and singing and worshiping and praying with all of you. Had a really as good as could be expected uh, time with, with Riverview Baptist Church, and we'll just see what the Lord does over there. But take your Bibles, open up with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 today, and if you have ever thought that Christians were a little weird, Christians were a little kooky, uh, I know some of you have, you don't have to raise your hand, well, today you're going to find out why that is, okay? From God's word, you're going to see why that is. And there's more than one reason why. We're going to see both of those reasons why. Um, and if you don't know Christ, the truth of, truth of the matter is, you really shouldn't be able to understand why Christians do what they do. We're going to get more into that later as we go along through this passage. But... According to 2 Corinthians 5, if followers of Jesus are who they are supposed to be, they are going to seem like they are beside themselves and outside of their mind to the world around them, to people who don't worship Jesus Christ. And on the flip side, if you're a Christian and living for Jesus is actually difficult for you and confusing and trying, it's a chore, you don't like being different, you're going to see exactly where that comes from as well. And I'll give you a hint. It doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. It comes from viewing your life through the wrong lens. This is a message about looking at your life through the correct lens, looking at Scripture through the correct lens. Uh, today's message is actually part one of two. We're going to finish chapter five next week. But... There's a lens of viewing scripture and living your life that is completely different than the rest of the world. It's a way of viewing scripture in your life that is completely different from even most religious people. So Paul has been building up to something here that's revolutionary. It's radical. He's been building up to this for a while now. And you can trace the origins of this all the way back to the very end of chapter 2, where we are told that we're in a triumphal procession and that we are the aroma of Christ. He uses this Roman analogy to explain that you are shining something. You are sharing and spreading something. So from that point on, all the way through chapter 3, all the way through chapter 4, he's been talking about this new ministry that the church of Jesus Christ has been called to. The veil has been removed from our hearts we no longer have the ministry of death, uh, the, the old law that was carved in letters of stone. We have a new ministry by the mercy of God. And 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7, tell us exactly what that is. Verse 6 there, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So that's our mission, to shine the light of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not easy. In this fallen, broken world, he's going back and forth. Paul is going back and forth with this idea that it's going to be hard. Affection in affliction. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 points that out. If you look at verse 16 with me. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. For we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. Then last week we pressed deeper into this idea that we aren't living for the present. And I loved, uh, I loved what Brother Steve brought us. It was so good to hear that from him. I listened to that sermon last Sunday night as well. Uh, he's in South Africa right now. But he even had some of you come up and share a word of testimony about what the Lord has been preparing you and, and teaching you. And, and it was so good to hear that. We'll do something similar to, similar to that very soon. But in Christ, we, we don't live for the present. In this earthly temporal tent, in our physical bodies, we groan. But God has given us his spirit. We walk by faith and not by sight. We don't think like the world. We're not motivated by the same things that, they, that we used to be motivated by. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians 5.10, where we left off, says this. Verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, verse 11 is where we're picking it all up, okay? So I gave you a lot of review because the first word of verse 11 is the word therefore. And whenever you're reading scripture and you see the word therefore, that means it is completely dependent and connected upon what just happened. And Paul has been saying a lot. As I said, he is built up to this point. He is now ready to go full throttle about how this ministry that he's been talking so much about, how it actually happens. So you can ask the question, why do I even desire to look at life through a different lens than everyone else? Maybe you don't want to be different. Maybe you want to just blend in. Well, there's two motivations in the text about being out of your mind in the best way possible. So would you please read along with me as we pick it up in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So the first motivation that makes followers of Jesus Christ view life through a different lens, number one, is knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So just before we dig into the text even more here, let me present to you 
the two lenses that people view the Bible through. Followers of Jesus, people who think they follow Jesus, even people who know that they are not following Jesus and they have no, no, no desire to follow Jesus. You either approach the Bible through the lens of morality or you approach the Bible through the lens of redemption. Those are the two lenses, morality or redemption. Now, there's plenty of wiggle room and variations in these two lenses, but at the end of the day, you either think of God's word, the Bible, in a moral lens. God expects me to live a certain way. God has created me with moral laws and boundaries and what he reveals about this world and, and me is true. And anything that is in opposition or contradiction of his character is sin. Now, now all of that that I just said is 100% true. It's all accurate. He has a will, and his way is the way to live. If we follow his plan and what he has revealed, we will prosper. He will bless. But, there's a big but here, simple morality is not the lens by which you should be studying the Bible. Simply looking at morality is not the lens by which you should be living your life and making your daily decisions. God didn't create you simply to be a moral, good person, right? Is, is there more? Is there more to it? God created you so that you could have a relationship with him where you bring him glory. And your life is ultimately all about that. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied, right? So if we solely look at the Bible like a rule book or a guide map or a list of practical solutions to live your best life, you are eventually going to find yourself being weird and kooky for all the wrong reasons. And even more importantly, you're missing the overarching point, the lens of redemption. The two verses that we're going to look at next week as we finish this chapter highlight this exact point. Look at verses 18 and 19. As we look not to the things that are, oh, that's chapter 4. For, uh, chapter, chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 Little little foreshadowing of what's to come next week. But all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So becoming holy, or you could say becoming more like Jesus Christ, the morality piece is a byproduct of growing in your love for God, and that happens in a reconciled relationship. It's very important that we get the order straight here. Our relationship is reconciled through redemption. The lens that you need to be looking at Jesus, looking at Scripture, is not just simply morality. It's the lens of redemption. That is the grand overarching theme of the, of, of the Bible. It's deeper and richer it's redemption. Think about the four main acts of Scripture, okay? What are they? First of all, you have creation. God created this world, and it was good. And then you have the fall, the curse of sin that scarred everything. Humans were the one thing in all of creation that were made in God's image. We were the pinnacle of his creation, okay, with a living, breathing soul designed to, to glorify God and show exactly who he is in this creation. And when Adam and Eve fell, the curse of sin affected everything. The animal kingdom, it affected nature. Everything fell under the curse of sin. 
And then you have the next act, which is the majority of the Bible, and it's God's plan for redemption. It's, it's the reconciliation. We couldn't save ourselves, but God came down to us. Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross. He died and he was raised. The atonement of Jesus Christ brings us reconciliation. And then in Revelation, you have the fourth and final act of consummation. God makes all things new. All things will become new in complete restoration and renewal. So the lens by which you should be viewing God's revealed word isn't just what's right, what's wrong, how do I become good and have good things happen to me? No, if you're looking at the Bible with that lens, you're going down the wrong path. That's what religious people do that are overtly religious without the relationship side of it. In another vein, it's even what spiritual people do, ones who don't even look to Scripture as their authority. They look at it this way as well, but that's another sermon for another day that's not really in this passage. When Christians view the Bible through the lens of morality, they eventually end up making it more about themselves than God. They play a comparison game. Uh, inevitably, pride sets in, and you have the ugly side effects of Christians looking very weird and sounding very weird, and they are different because they are living in their own little bubble. And in actuality, in their motives, they aren't even thinking that much differently than the lost world. They've just set their morals on a different place, in a different goal, in a different agenda. So do you think that's going to compel the world to come see what you have? Is that going to give them a desire to find Jesus? If it's all about morality, and that's your calling card, and that's what you're known by, then the world looks at you like you're out of your mind. And it's a very unattractive difference. The Bible is the story of redemption. You cannot put morality ahead of redemption. It just never works. You can't live for Jesus without Jesus. So this is a story of redemption and reconciliation first. And morality and what is good and true, God's way flows from that starting point. And if you approach your faith with the wrong lens and it's a religion of good works and morals, you make your faith an exchange system of blessing and rewarding for, for your exemplary behavior, what does Christianity morph into? It morphs into the fear of man and not the fear of the Lord. Something life-sucking, something boring. And honestly, there are thousands of people who this is the lens of, the, of, of their faith. And they have disconnected from the church. They have, they have walked away from it. I have, I have faces and names come to my mind. You probably do too. We have to pursue those people and persuade those people to come back to the true faith. Look at it through the right lens. The true fear of the Lord only comes through the lens of reconciliation and redemption. It has to be lived through the leading and the strengthening of the Spirit. That's what Paul has built up to right here in verse 11. And right here we have the first motivation of the redemptive lens. It's the fear of the Lord. So let's be very clear for a second. Motivation matters, right? Motivation matters a whole lot. 
if I was to say, all right, I want to I wanna do something for my wife, Julie, and all right, I'm going to get her some flowers, some Sour Patch Kids, and I would show up at the house unannounced just to, to surprise her and say, hey, Julie, I wanted to get you this for no other reason other than I love you and you're an amazing person, you're beautiful, I just, I pinch myself that I'm married to you. That would go pretty well, right? Most of the time, that would go pretty well. If that was my motivation. If I showed up and dropped off the candy and the flowers to Julie and just said, hey, Julie, I'm tired of you complaining that I never do stuff like this, so get off my back, here you go. Not great, not great. One would lead to a kiss, one would lead to spending the night on the couch, right? <laughs> the motivation matters. Why you're doing what you do completely makes all the difference in the world. Your motives are always revealed, especially in this, this, this passage of scriptures pointing this out. It's revealed in what you value and what you boast in. And in this context here, you have to remember that Paul is dealing with the false teachers that have like infiltrated the church at Corinth. These are these new hotshot leaders they're attacking Paul. We don't know exactly what they say, but it's really pretty easy to read in between the lines and get the gist that they were saying Paul isn't flashy enough. He's weak. He doesn't, you know, he's not a great speaker. And Paul says in verse 11, what we are is known by God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. And here's the reason why he's doing what he's doing so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. The false teachers were on a crusade against Paul's ministry. They weren't led of the Spirit. They were centered on works and the show. You know, their contemporaries today would, would be the type of people that would focus on style and numbers and, and all of the flashy stuff. They talked the good talk for sure. They would have been really fun to listen to. But the undercurrent and the motivation was driven by something different than the fear of the Lord. So Paul right now is living 180 degrees outside of their world. He knows the end game. He knows the result of that. The fruit of that is stress, anxiety, guilt. It's the fear of man. Those are the fruits of the wrong motives which spring from the wrong lens. So you've heard me talk about the fear of the Lord a lot. I mean, we did a podcast on this a little while back. But the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is one of the most misunderstood, you know, gray areas for a lot of people's faith. So let me tell you what the fear of the Lord is not, okay? It is not the destructive nature of human fear. It's not what we're talking about. Thinking, thinking of like human fear, like I, I was thinking about this in, back in October when I, when I got COVID. You know, I, I came down with like on a Friday night, I was on a date with Julie and I got this fever. And then the rest of Saturday, I wasn't feeling great. I was kind of tired. My fever wouldn't go away. So I was like, I better, not, I better not go to church. I better go get a test. And I called Ben like Saturday afternoon. It's like, dude, you're going to have to preach, preach tomorrow. Um, and, it, and I was knocked out for a couple of days there before I, my body started recovering. But when I went and got the test, I was sitting in the doctor's office with my mask on, waiting for the result on Sunday morning. And the doctor came in, and he immediately uh, scolded me on how I was wearing my mask. And then he proceeded to lecture me on catching COVID. 
And it was this really weird experience where he like was looking down at me, like basically blaming me for being careless to catch COVID and to started talking about friends he had that were my age that had died from COVID. And I was just like, wow. Um, I, wasn't, I, wasn't gonna, I wasn't in a position to change his mind or, or say anything other than just like respectfully nod and smile and move on. But as I walked out that morning, I was like, this could really shake a lot of people. This guy is emotionally on high alert. And, 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 and he would mess with a lot of people's psyches if they heard a doctor talking that way about this. That right there is rooted in the fear of man. What's going to happen to me? I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm stressed here because, because I have an unknown situation that I can't control. That is the fear of man. It's the opposite of the fear of the Lord. The fear of what might happen leads to anxiety. The fear of the Lord is having a sense of respect and awe that I am known by a holy God, an all-powerful God who cares for me. He has a plan and purpose for me. And that means I'm going to take my life seriously. I have value. I have worth in, in the fact that God has called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. He wants me to share that with the world. Paul is not trying here to persuade God, right? Who's he persuading? He's persuading others. He knows where he's at with God. He's not boasting about the outward appearance. He cares only about what God cares about, the heart. It's right there in verse 12. Back in the Old Testament, Samuel revealed to us that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So, personalize this. You've got to ask yourself this question. Why do I do what I do? Do I have the fear of man? Or do I have the fear of the Lord? Do you persuade others at all? Is that something that you're making a part of your life? The word persuade here means to implore, to plead with someone because you love them and you are convinced that you can help, you can share what you have received that will help them. The gospel is our good news to share. And this is very important. We should be sharing it with the lost and we should be sharing it with fellow Christians. We all need to be reminded of the gospel. We persuade each other with the grace and the mercy of God. In life groups, we ask advice. We seek counsel. We pray for one another. In Bible studies, through the lens of redemption, we lovingly share God's truth and his rules that are set there to support us and help us. When God says don't, if you're going to go down the morality way, right, which, which is a byproduct of an overflow of the redemptive lens. But when God says don't, is what he means is don't hurt yourself. He's always setting those guidelines in place to protect you. He made the rules, and if you go off and do your own rules, it's not going to go as well. Knowing the fear of the Lord with that motivation, we persuade others. And it's not just brothers and sisters in Christ from your local church that you're pouring into and, and ministering to. It also has to be the lost. Paul has been talking a lot about this. It's been in every paragraph, again, all the way since the very end of chapter 2. 
In Acts 18 even, when you saw the history of how the church of Corinth was started, Paul went to the synagogue and he boldly opened his mouth and he preached to the Jews and to the Greeks the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you fear the Lord, you persuade others. When was the last time you shared the gospel? You attempted to persuade someone with the truth of what has happened to you and your testimony of how God has made you new. I hope it was recently. It could have been with another fellow believer and you're reminding them of the gospel and the truth of who God is. It could have been with someone who is far from God. And if you didn't do it this last week, you can, that's okay. You can do it this week. We all can. Chapter 4 gave us the blueprint, if you remember this. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul wasn't driven by pride. He wasn't driven by resentment or the fear of man. He was driven by the fear of the Lord. He was motivated by, by what God would say to him at the great white throne judgment, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. And the great responsibility and the calling that God had entrusted with him, that's how he was driven to persuade others. So there's your first motivation. It's the fear of the Lord. And verse 13 is a transition verse. I love this verse because it's so countercultural to the boring, stiff religion that so many people know. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Okay? Now, think about this picture. I, I, was, I was looking again at the two different lenses as I thought, thought through this. When I was a kid, um, my dad was saved when he was 18. My mom was saved when her family found a church that preached the gospel when she was in sixth grade. They were going to a, another Baptist church that just didn't preach the gospel, and then the Lord led. It was a Holy Spirit sort of thing. They found a church. She got saved. So my parents were, were on fire for Jesus. It was a very balanced home. They loved God. You know, I wanted what my parents had. It was very attractive to me. Because they, lo they loved me, they, they loved Jesus, and they also had an affection for the world and the lost people. It was a great home. We, had, we didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of fun. And that was the home I grew up in. But at the same time, there, we were in circles, and we would rub shoulders with other Christians who, looking back at it, completely looked at the Bible, not through the lens of redemption, but just through morality, Okay? And it, and it created a lot of weird things. The, there was extreme dress standards for some of the ladies, like to the point where they couldn't even really dress feminine half the time. I remember I had a Sunday school teacher once when I was like third or fourth grade, and she told me that boys should not wear shorts because that's worldly. And I was just like, that's weird. You know, if, if that was the case, my dad would have said that. What, what, what's wrong? I've, I've, never, I've naturally never been a rule follower, so I've, I've never really gone that way. I, I, I never bought into any of that. But that whole view of, of just looking at your faith for what does God want me to do? What does God say here? And I have to do this to please God, and I have to measure up. I have to be this way before I could ever be used by God. 
That is the wrong lens. Paul here, when he's talking to the Corinthians, he's saying, look, we have a new calling, a new mission. We're going to be different because we think differently. The lens of redemption makes you out of your mind in the best way possible. That's what Paul is talking about. If you are beside yourself, it is for God. If we're out of our, if out of our minds, it is for you. You go to great lengths to persuade others because you know what God did for you. And you want the same thing for everyone else that you care about. So it's not dressing weird and sticking your, sticking your head in the sand and isolating yourself from the world. It's something totally different here in the second motivation. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who died and was raised. That's who we're living for. So knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And number two, compelled by the love of Christ, we no longer live for ourselves. There's your second point. Compelled by the love of Christ, we no longer live for ourselves. The love of Christ controls us. The Greek word here for control that you may see in your Bible. Some English translations use the word constrain. The King James used constraineth. A lot of modern translations use the word compels us. It's a very nuanced word in the original language. It's the word syneco, scattered throughout the New Testament, but it means to exercise a constraining influence on, to be seized with, to be hard-pressed by urgency. So the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. It holds us together. It applies pressure to form us and shape us. And that's what drives us forward. It's not the fear of what somebody else is going to say about you and how you're going to measure up in their eyes. It's not the fear of man. It's being held together by his love. What's holding the Christian together with the redemptive lens is not fear or guilt. We are free. Remember Paul's attitude in the previous verses? I actually don't care what anyone says. I only care about the heart because God cares about the heart. That's a great place to be. It literally means that man's opinions will not bother you anymore. You're too wrapped up in Christ's love for you. That's controlling you. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but usually when people say, I don't care what you think, it literally means they, they do care <laughs> what people think. And, and, and Paul was saying that without saying that, right? Paul was saying, look, I know who I am. I know where my identity is. I know, I know where my conscience is. He, he is not concerned about their view of him. He is bold. He is, he is free. He has confidence in Christ. But if a person's always talking about, like, I don't care what you think, well, if you really didn't care, why do, you, why do you care enough to tell me that you don't care? Because if you really didn't care, wouldn't you just not say anything? <laughs> but I digress. Paul says exactly in verse 11, I know who I am, God knows my heart, I'm confident in my identity, and you may think that I'm out of my mind, and yeah, I don't think like y'all, 
But if I'm out of my mind and I'm totally different, it's for you. It's because the love of Christ is controlling me. So what drives you? Are you compelled by the love of Christ? Is that that the driving, motivating factor of your life? Feeling like you have to be better to be able to do something for God is not being compelled by the love of Christ. And Christians can't get trapped into this. Again, it's the wrong lens. It's the lens of morality. You feel like God is constantly upset at you because I stink at being good. I just can't do it. So God's always upset at me. You hate certain things about yourself, and you, and you hate what you think other people think about you. What a headache. Talk about religious baggage. This is a drain on people. No, no wonder people move on from the church when they look at it through that lens. But the contrast here is so glorious. Verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Thank you, Jesus. Compelled by the love of Christ, we no longer live for ourselves. That is a radically freeing thought. This is what makes you the kind of person who compared to everyone else is just out of their mind in the best way possible. Think about how much of an affront this is, this line of thinking, to our current culture. Because it's radically different. No, people out there don't think this way in our day and age. We are told from the second that we can understand words, you are special, and whatever you want, you should have it. And whatever your heart craves, that is tied to your personhood. You just go out there and get what you deserve. You are a queen. You don't dare let anyone stop you from being who you are supposed to be. That's who you're meant to be. That's the world's message. So question for us all, how is that going for everyone out there? Is is that working? I would say no. He has created a country full of individuals who are looking out for number one. That that line of thinking does not help you become the kind of person who sacrifices for the least of us, who, who, who works overtime for the good of others. It doesn't create people who are content with joy and peace in their heart. Jesus taught us the secret to joy and peace is not living for yourself, it's living for others. That's hardwired into our DNA. And if you want to get over your pain and suffering, you have to stop wallowing in in what just happened to you. you got to shave. you got to change out of the sweatpants and just get out there and serve someone. Love someone in the community. That will work 100% of the time. Do something productive and serve. Lift someone else up. Jesus' followers are to be compelled by love. We look at everything through the lens of redemption. He gave his life for me. I am free. I'm no longer a a slave to sin. I have been set free to no longer live for myself. And throughout human history, anyone who does anything productive with their life understands that 
we shouldn't just follow every compulsion that we have been given. Every, every desire I have shouldn't just have free reign in my life. We, we do live in a day right now where boundaries are seen as oppressive and you have to be true to yourself. And even if those cravings are impure and contrary to God's will, well, who's to say if that desire is wrong if I don't have any moral or, or authority outside of myself? We find that from God. But this is where we're at today. This is why our world is going down this treacherous path where it's a good thing for a three-year-old to determine their gender and to go on life-changing hormone blockers. We have gone all the way to that point, and it's not going to stop there. It, it will not stop until you turn it around and you say, who am I? I'm not here living for myself. This life isn't all about me. The world tells you the only way to be me is to say yes to everything that my heart craves. This is why we have suicide rates and depression rates that are through the roof. This is why our nation is just getting drugged. Because you look around, and this is the disintegration of our society. It's that lie is being unfolded. The most miserable, angry people on earth live for themselves. The most anxious, rattled people on their earth live in fear of others. So we have to live differently. We're not living for that buzz of, of, of acceptance on social media, the likes, the retweets, the how many people are following me, all of that, the emoji hearts, whatever. It is, it is a, it's a life of slavery to the approval of others. It's not being compelled by the love of Christ. It's impossible to have fulfilling relationships if you are depending on validation from others to be confident in your identity. Can't live that way. Think, just think about how that would work in a marriage or in a work partnership. If everyone has to serve you to validate you, that is going to lead to a miserable life. Because the point isn't for people to make you happy for you to have value. Just like the point isn't to be moral, to find God or to please God. If everyone thinks I'm the point, we have, we have a culture of outrage. Does it sound familiar? This is why people are losing their mind and freaking out and stress eating and cursing life. Because they are steeped in a worldview where I'm the point. And when the universe points out that you're not the point, it's infuriating for that person who's living for themselves. In, in another sense, looking at life through the lens of morality, it's just another way you're doing that. The tune is just in a different pitch because God is replaced with yourself. You've made yourself the source of morality. You, your own image is the God figure. So here's the good news. The love of Christ compels me. You can erase all that mess, all that stress, and you can look at the fact that because I know he died for me, I died. My old self. I used to live that rat race. I was hooked on the fleeting pursuit of pleasure. With my old self, I had all these addictions, and I had a life of eternal meaninglessness. That old self died. It's over. It's in the grave. Do you see that again in verse 14? Now you are free. And the point isn't me anymore. 
I live for God's glory. And I am compelled and held by the love of Christ. And here's the incredible part. I am different now, and I am out of my, right, out of my mind in the best way possible. You are so different. You think so differently than everyone else. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I can say no to the endless disappointment and stress of being self-centered. Worship team, you can come up to the stage. We're going to close in another song in a minute here. Instead of trying to live up to everyone else's expectations and looking through the lens of me, or instead of constantly trying to be good and look at God through the lens of morality, look at yourself through the lens of redemption. What has God done in my life? And now what ministry has he given me? This ministry of reconciliation. The only thing you have to offer to God is your sin. It's all you have to do. You offer up your sin, and then you watch him take care of the rest. You are then compelled by the love of Christ. That is being set free from competing and striving in vain to feeling used. It's being set free to love Christ and to love others. Christ died for me. My old life is in the grave, and it's all because of Christ. When you are compelled with the love of Christ, you have joy in the storm, and you're not shaken by every wind and every wave. And that is when the lost person looks at you, and they say, wow, I want what they're having. They are different. They have something I don't have, and you are different for all the right reasons. Would you stand up? We have a good God, a good Father who loves us. And if you've been living your Christian life through the lens of morality and it's been all about what I can do to please God and how I can measure up and, and be the right kind of person that I'm supposed to be, that faith is completely just, it's, it's, it's a stressor. It'll wear you down. And you, and you won't have the freedom to be who you're called to be. You're going to always be stressed about doing the right thing at the right time. Being compelled by the love of Christ, living with the fear of the Lord, means you know, I don't have it all together, but God loved me anyway. I offered up my, my weakness, just like Paul, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is strengthening me. He has made me into someone who I was not before. And you think differently. You're more confident. You're more bold. You have a passion for eternity that is contagious. You magnify Jesus Christ. Let's sing to him about that. articulate with the thousand 
tongues to live one cry Then from north to south And east to west We hear cry